This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we cover part two of Karl Kautsky's The Social Revolution, on the day after The Social Revolution, in which we discuss Kautsky's closet politics, the brutal contrast to Leninism, contemporary class composition, international dynamics of revolution, and why anybody should take us seriously whatsoever. Yes, we are live. All right. Hey, this is Donald Parkinson from the Communist League of Tampa. Jake is not going to be here tonight, but joining us is Anton Johansson. What's up from uh, Communist League of Tampa? And Lexi. What's up? It's Lexi from Red Party with nothing to fear. uh, Peter. And Peter Moody, also from the Red Party. I guess we're going to be finishing the uh, discussion on the two-part Kotsky book, The Social Revolution, and the day after. And uh, the first part we had, we already discussed was about um, basically just his argument for why revolution is necessary as opposed to a gradualist reformist approach. And then in this piece, he actually tries to kind of lay out some of the uh, policies that a revolutionary party would be putting into place and how even we would like gradually transform the economy into a socialist economy. I'm surprised this is not read more, to be honest, because it really is one of the most in-depth like explanations of what socialism would look like mm-hmm. that you can see at this time. Yeah, I have to agree with that. It's pretty remarkable that this is a buried text. Yeah. yeah. I, I There was a, a person who joined the IWW back in November. He like texted me a question like a month or two ago and was just like, you know, I was thinking, like, what's going to happen, you know, after there's, like, a socialist revolution? Like, how will, like, money work and stuff like that? And, you know, like, so we had a conversation about it. It's a very common thing for people to talk about. But then when I was reading this, I was like, oh, I should have just given him this. Like, if I, I should have known <laughs> that I could have just given him this. If I had well, that's the point that he makes at the beginning of this part is that it's kind of vital for propaganda purposes to have, mm-hmm. like, these kind of descriptions you know, there's this kind of fear amongst uh, a people of um, what gets called Lego socialism, I guess, which is, you know, I guess what, what Kotsky calls it is planning out the kitchens of the future. Mm-hmm. And he says, all right, well, we can't do that. We can't, you know, write a sci-fi novel about what communism is going to be like and make this utopian plan. But what we can do is that we can visualize the concrete issues that we will face come, coming to power and the kind of concrete policies that um, the proletariat would make, I guess. And that's kind of what he's doing. He says, um, but I maintain that it is a help to political clearness to examine the problems that will grow out of the conquests of political power by us. This is also valuable for propaganda, since our opponents frequently assert that our victory will give us unsoluble problems. And we have in our ranks also people who are unable to paint the results of our victory black enough. According to these people, the day of our victory is also a day of our downfall. Therefore, it's important to investigate and to know how far this is the case. And so he is actually saying, like, listen, there's a real problem here. We have to figure out, like, what we do after the revolution, before the revolution actually happens. We can't just wing it and ad hoc it. 
And so we need to start looking at, you know, what are the concrete issues that we're going to face and how are we going to work with them? And so I feel like in this, he's doing a really good job at not being utopian, but not completely rejecting making any plans, which is what a lot of communists do today. Yeah, in, in some sense, I kind of see this as an extension of Kautsky's old debates, like old in the sense of, uh, I think, back in the 1880s with the, the state socialists in and outside of the SPD at the time, who at least purported to have a, a fairly well-worked-out plan of what a socialist economy might look like, um, at least in the sense that it was just state control of industry ever advancing into various sectors of the economy. Yeah. So from that perspective, I, I can see why when you actually have a competing, at least semi-worked-out plan, the necessity of having your own at least somewhat worked out plan is much more relevant. We don't have really any of that since there's a dearth of theory in basically everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. It's very easy to slide into saying, oh, well, this isn't that important, but it's it still is. Well, yeah. a lot of people say that it's not that important. I think a lot of the time because they know they don't have the skills to actually figure it out, yeah. not because it's not important. I mean, this is something that Marxists used to say, and it was believable because the distinction between utopian and scientific socialism was that one of them was focusing on developments within society that were already progressing towards a socialist class vision. Whereas, you know, the utopians were always dreaming things up. We're in a situation yeah. where there still are tendencies, you know, towards socialism, but they're not as, you know, obvious as they used to be. Like, in, and the biggest one, the one that seemed to be the obvious political transition has collapsed. And, and so, I don't know, something to it. I was struck by, so when he gets into, like, the details of eliminating inefficient firms from particular industries and, like, concentrating production and stuff like that, we're so much more productive now, right? Most economies are so much more developed now. The technology that we have allows for so much more production per labor hour now. And so just doing even those sort of rough calculations that he was doing would be really interesting and could be pretty like agitationally useful, I think, amongst uh, some people who might be drawn in by those aspects, especially if they're sort of like middle class or they're studying economics or they kind of already have a sort of plan-y framework. I don't know. Well, I think ordinary workers want to know, like, how the fuck they're going to get their bread after the revolution happens, because right. a lot of people have their, their vision of communism as one big bread line. And so people actually do care, like, how are we going to get food on your table after we take control of, you know, the state or whatever? Like, and I think the people who don't really take these problems seriously are actually doing a lot of damage Mm -hmm. to, 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 you know, the general vision of socialism because it makes people look disconnected from the realities of, like, life. <laughs> the one current, I guess, today that's really against having any kind of plan of what communism would look like is the communizers. And they literally are, you know, they don't have any idea, they don't have an answer for you on how we're going to actually feed people and make things function after the day of the revolution. And Kotsky is actually trying to, the answer of those questions and it's his, his answers might not like be super radical and crazy but they are pretty satisfactory answers i'm sorry if expropriate all private property immediately is not enough of a plan for you donald parkinson okay <laughs> i'm sorry if overnight expropriation doesn't seem tenable 
it's compensated expropriation. This is a re- relatively like peaceable, you know, vision. And you know, Kautsky is saying in the beginning, this is really an abstraction of you know, one fine day, the working class is just all in power at once. It's a simplified version. Yeah, he says that it's we're really abstracting a lot here because the proletariat in its actuality as a class is very uneven and diverse and divided. And so we're we're making a lot of abstractions. And that's a that's a that's a good point to make. So like when you draw the line, right? Like you say, we don't want to be utopian and talk about the future and every little detail, but then what do you actually talk about? And as Lexi put it, we would focus on like developments. And that seems to be what he's doing here, which is what the communizers don't do. Instead, they assert the abstract principle of communization, communize everything immediately, right? That the only way to make sure there isn't going to be a capitalist rollback of the revolution is if if we just communize everything. Yeah, that all commerce is basically immediately realized, is immediately destroyed, basically. I think in a political sense, they do see themselves as looking towards the real movement. And I think they have a point. They are looking to... The you know movement of squares. They're looking towards the sort of insurrectionary outbursts. They're looking towards like trying to clarify some of the vague like radical like identitarian politics. Like they're looking towards what's there. But I think their openness and their kind of like failure to come up with an alternative to you know class politics, like as class politics somehow. Maybe, you know, I think I agree with them that the old way of work, you know, there's really been a change, just to be totally orthodox, there's been a change in the forces and relations of production, which have created a new superstructural situation. (laughs) And um, people's relationship to work is different. That's true. But we still need to do class politics as class politics. We can't like, we can't rely on the, you know, internal contradictions of identity politics or like, you know, anti-Trumpism or like, you know, riot communism or something. We can't like rely on the intra-class dynamics to present themselves. We have to name them. We have to name those things. Like capital consciousness is good and it's a good way to like individualize people's experience getting frustrated by capitalism. But there still needs to be, a, we have to name class. We have to talk about that in a, in a non like workerist way. I guess the prescriptive stuff, or especially some, like when you get in between the, the endnote stuff where they reflect on the 20th century and the links to Dov, Dov is not as bad, but it comes down to, it's almost a tautology, right? Like if they had succeeded, they wouldn't have failed, right? And, and they failed because they had the wrong conception of this or that or whatever else. Right. So that's endnotes and theory communist critique of people with a more or less invariant idea of what communism should be. Duvet is really, in a way, similar, more similar to a neo-Kautskyist than where, like, theory communist and, like, a lot of endnotes end up. Right, right. Like, the vision of communism is, is different. Yeah, Duvet does kind of have, like, this invariant program aspect of to him that you get from Bordiga. Mm-hmm. But um, I just think it's important. I think the whole... Say what you want about endnotes and communization or whatever, but the point is, like, we have to be willing to give concrete proposals of policy and what kind of changes we would make in society and kind of sketch these things out, if not only for agitational reasons, because, you know, if you're going to advocate for a gigantic overhaul of everything in society, people are going to want answers, you know? Yeah, we have to accept some of this 
analytical, bourgeois, capitalist reason that permeates our consciousness all the time. <laughs> and we have to use it to explain to fellow humans on planet Earth why we're not crazy, why we're not just grasping at abstractions that you know, will end up being some kind of scary project or why we're not just hipsters, you know, like, why are we serious? And, you know, we should ask ourselves, you know, why should anyone trust me? <laughs> why should anybody trust me? That, yeah, I mean, if we don't have answers on, you know, what's going to happen to money or what's going to happen to education, if you don't have answers to these questions, then why should people follow us? Why should we expect them to become communists? You know, why, why should we believe ourselves about it? Yeah, why should we even believe in these ideas that we don't have answers? But and that you know, seems to be like a big part of the merit of this text is that it is so much more down to earth than anything that tends to be written on this type of question today. So yeah, he goes on to um, talk about how at first, like what the proletariat does is they kind of he says in the first place it is self-evident that recover what the bourgeoisie has lost. It would sweep away all remnants of feudalism and realize the democratic program for which the bourgeois once stood. And so it's kind of weird because in this part he describes basically getting rid of the military and replacing of a people's militia in the most peaceful way that you can abstractly <laughs> imagine it, of course. But right. I, does this answer our question, though? Well, if, does Kotsky believe that the bourgeoisie, the bourgeois state, needs to be smashed? Because he pretty much says it right here: like bourgeois army is going to be dissolved and replaced with um, a people's militia. And yeah, when I was listening I mean, over to the part one episode, you know, and like reading kind of over the text again, you know what? Like, I think I forget who summed it up, but the idea that there was um, parliament as like a transitional body that doesn't get smashed. Yeah. Um, and the more I think about it, uh, based on our conversations about like Lincoln and his prosecution of the Civil War versus the Bolsheviks prosecution of the Civil War. I don't know, like there's something about that that's not like insane. Like I think our, you know, House of Representatives or whatever is still such a, you know, damaged institution. It's hard to imagine it playing a part. But there's a certain seductive logic to not wanting to destroy all current democratic norms during a revolution. If you read Draper's book on Marx and Engels' ideas about bureaucracy and the state, he kind of makes a similar argument, which is that they're kind of started as these like radical Democrats and Republicans, and then they go into communism and they kind of hold on to this idea that the legislative wing of the state or the body is what represents civil society or can represent the workers eventually in the state, and it needs to subordinate the executive and other aspects of the state. So there's, I think there's definitely a connection there. Yeah, I think there's this idea that you know maybe the House of Reps could be reformed into a way that it becomes a body that workers' deputies are you know, um, appointed to and recallable from and turn into a working body that has um, power over the executive and whatnot. And so I think Kotsky does think the bourgeois state needs to be smashed, and this pamphlet makes it evident. It's just that he doesn't phrase it that way. And I think as Peter was saying, that's, there's a reason why you wouldn't phrase it that way, and that's because... You're trying to make a legal party, and there's strict laws against, you know, these kind of agitations. So, so he says the party wants to extend universal suffrage to every individual, complete freedom of the press and assembly, um, state independent of the church, abolish all rights of inheritance, establish complete autonomy in all 
individual communities and abolish militarism and um, introduce, introduce universal armament and the dissolution of the army, which is like, that's kind of like the democratic Republican minimum program, right? With yeah. the exception of hiring and firing power. But he goes on to talk about those aspects as well. So given the distinction that he makes before this, where he says like, okay, assume that the proletariat gets like total political power, like, and it falls in its lap or whatever. The economic questions are still really unfinished. Then like, and then that's his like framework for the whole, this whole section of the social revolution piece. So it makes sense that, yeah, he's kind of covering that up or putting it in terms other than we need to smash the bourgeois state. I had a thought about uh, the expropriation of the expropriators. He makes a comment about the characterless slum proletariat, which will lend itself to anything for money um, in place of an army built on universal compulsory military service. Um, Part of me when reading this text is, is trying to look for things that are different in our lives than his. We're definitely in a situation where that's probably closer to army of characterless slum proletariat than universal compulsory military service. If we were to phrase it in current terminology, we'd call it the economic draft, perhaps. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of humanizing people that find that necessary. But, you know, we have to, we have to fess up to the Marxist history of kind of like looking down on, on the people that have been like, you know, in such a desperate position and to be hired by the bourgeoisie to be used against fractions of the proletariat. We got to talk about that. Well, that's just, kind of the argument that Koski makes is that when you're scraping by just to survive day by day, you're not really as likely to develop class consciousness and you're more likely to buy into some kind of Bonapartist dictator's problem to, to deliver you security. Those really downtrodden elements of the proletariat, it is, there is an element of truth to that. But I think. Koski does kind of make a mistake of kind of just dismissing them rather than saying we right. need to try to win them over. Yeah, that's the essential problematic is that it's assumed that these people aren't really part of the political proletariat, that it's like not worth trying to get them on board. Whereas in our situation, that's political suicide. Yeah, exactly. And for example, like most of the organizing that CLT has done in Tampa has been around homeless rights and stuff. So it's how a lot of class struggles today present themselves do have a, a kind of lumpen proletariat element today, because I think there has been kind of a lumpenization of the working class. And so, you know, making this, you know, strict, you know, divide between the slum proletariat and the, the proper proletariat, I think is not as useful today. Is there any uh, clarifying text or anything like that that specifically like, where Kotsky lays out in more detail what he means by the, the sort of the lumpen proletariat or the slum proletariat. I it's remember reading... The class struggle. Yeah, I think there's something about it in there, yeah. Yeah. He, he has a whole section on it in the class struggle. I'll defend it on in the fact that it goes against this immiseration thesis where you want the, everyone to be so absolutely miserable that they have no choice but to rebel. And that's how you're going to get revolution is basically just through like absolute desperation and crisis. That yeah, basically it's got to become so bad that people are forced to overthrow the state to survive. And that's the only way you'll get revolution. And a lot of like council communists and communizers and like ultra left types make this argument hardcore. You, you know, like the postmodern, like post-Marxist, like, uh, kind of post-structuralist, like, asshats that I don't really like a lot. Like, a lot of them actually talk about that, how, like, if people are really ruined by capitalism, they can't fight back. Like, if they're really, like, really 
totally fucked by cat like um yeah leotard the guy who you know has that unwieldy phrase that everybody uses to describe postmodernism, the incredulity towards meta narratives. That guy was really specifically breaking with Marxism and really having that academic frustration that and sexualizing it in this really weird fucking way that, you know, the working class, they just love being fucked. You know, they don't care. You know, they don't We're like Christians telling them not to let capital fuck them. You know, there's something to that. It's like Marxist purity in this world of dirtiness. Yeah, there's this worry about workers that you constantly get in Marxism is how largely phrase it phrases it. And Lenin is accused of having in what is to be done, but it's really like you see it more so in people like Sorel and um, the ultra-left types where basically it's a generally just this idea that the proles are just losing their consciousness as a class and they're becoming like degraded as a class. There's a weird like agency thing that is at play here that it, it's like gets talked around and this is maybe connected to ideas about like vanguardism and Leninism and it, I guess it's tied to Kotsky too because he talks about the merger formula. But I mean it's the central like problem is just that like there has to be active socialist organization amongst workers. It's not going to happen by itself. So I think that that's definitely a re- like a related issue. Well, the argument that I hear today often against the merger formula is, you know, which is merge socialism with the labor movement is, oh, well, there's no labor movement. So what's the point? Like, what merge socialism with what? But that's missing the point that socialists have to help create the labor movement and take part in building that labor movement. It doesn't mean that we just wait for a labor movement to develop and then we just merge with it when it's there for us like you know we just wait for the workers councils to pop up and then show up and tell them the good news like it's it's obviously more complex than that you know it's more complex than that though because there's a deeper problem because you know we're going to create the labor movement right now is not all that much different from we're going to build the party right now and a lot of us are isolated fragmented we can't get uh networked and together there are reasons that people can't build the labor movement right now. Um, and that's not to say that we have to abandon the merger formula, but we also have to be finding what Marxists call the working class where they are, you know, and not always under the word workers. They're not always going to be thinking of themselves as workers. We have to find people struggling however they're struggling and get them class conscious in a way that doesn't sound right wing in the United States. If we talk about work, work this, work that, work this, like a lot of people here are alienated by that. Yeah, I mean, I'm always for taking a more humanist rhetoric in general in our propaganda yeah. rather than a more workerist rhetoric because I think people will be more, I think they will just be more attracted in general to kind of humanist universalism and then yeah. they're attaching the cause of labor, explaining that way, you know. There's a little bit of producerism there, but I don't think it has to be like a negative connotation. I don't know. There doesn't have to be, but it's... definitely the point I was trying to make is that the right wing is organized um, and they can partly they can just leverage the spontaneous organization of capitalist society to their favor. Right. They can just appeal to groups as they are sort of. Um, and we don't right. really have that benefit because we kind of have to make our constituency as we go. Yeah. Like the right wing are the ones that are involved in organizing capitalist society the way that it is organized. Right. So it's still an organizing problem for us. 
to to sort of choose what what yeah what like propaganda points we take back or we modify or how we approach them and stuff. But I yeah. guess. I wouldn't want to be interpreted as saying that we should abandon class rhetoric or anything like that. Like, obviously, class still needs to be central, but we need to kind of point out, like, the humanistic elements of class politics, I guess. Right. Right. That that is is where we need to be because you can't really be a humanist and be for this society. I mean, I know that, nominally speaking, this is a humanist society, and most of the societies in the world are. But it's very simple to do an imminent critique of a society like this. It's, it's not difficult based yeah. on the humanist principles that we're all taught growing up, mm-hmm. right? And to see how it's not consistent with the practice. It's a much easier appeal. Yeah, we have to be focusing on the liberation of the working class as a precondition for the liberation of humanity as a whole. Yeah, exactly. Uh, rather than liberation of the working class in opposition to basically all other categories. There are some categories that are inherently going to be in opposition to the liberation of the working class, but that's the job is to explain workers' liberation means the liberation of everyone who is dependent on the wage fund, which is the vast majority of society, whether or not they're they're ultimately working. It's not not categories, it's people. There are people who have a personal vested interest and an interest as a class, right? The capitalist class, even the petty bourgeoisie. Kotsky makes a pretty good case that you would see rising wages here, and we can get into that. Oh, I guess we will later. But there are people that will that are going to lose. You know, the issue is that there's a group of people who have no interest as a group, right, to assert against the rest of humanity. That's what it is, right? Like as a class, there's not really anywhere for workers to turn as workers. Right. They have to they always have to revert to some other category, as Peter was putting it, like nationalism or something else to sort of get in on the spoils of capitalism. Right. They always have to betray their class condition or ignore it or paper over it with some other sort of ideology. If you were talking like in terms of being the international proletariat, then sure. But right. in terms of being an American worker, and this is where the problem is. Right. Like. You could be an American worker and get in on like the spoils, at least traditionally speaking. All right, you know we're we're in a much more complicated time now, where the American worker is fucked. Like even traditionally bought off American workers are fucked. That's why we're here. <laughs> That's why our political environment is so different. It's because that that, that class collaborationist uh, project has fallen away. It succeeded, and the thing is, is that because it succeeded, you saw unions die and you saw the labor movement kind of go away this is a deep structural condition that needs to be addressed in part politically like not 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 to say that you know we can build the party right now but there does have to be like in part in the way that there needs to be a voluntary effort of building labor there has to be like a voluntary political effort of making it you know possible to organize labor more like that's 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 what democratic institutions are for 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 marxists and that's why i'm totally for running for office and trying to win legislation that will make unionization easier because there's just no reason not to i was going to bring up how he says the main task is initially getting rid of unemployment Basically, I think he says that when yeah. the proletariat first comes to power, the first thing that it has to really deal with economically is unemployment. And he kind of gives some ideas on how this would be done. I don't know. I was just wondering like, what people's ideas are on how we would do that today. Like, what programs would we use to kind of deal with unemployment? 
one of the major things you would do is institute a maximum workday, maximum hours for like certain types of labor so that, you know, more people would have to be hired. You'd really have to like tear up the social insurance system and, and start on a universal welfare state like package, like almost immediately in order to actually make something like that practicable because of how difficult it would be. Um, otherwise, we, you would just do like government programs, like dead up. What, depending on how Lasallian you want to be right away. It's like UBI, right? It's like universal basic income. I mean, not in those terms, but the reason you don't want to get fired primarily is because that's how you secure your necessities for survival. That's how you get the food. That's how you pay your bills. So I think it's interesting because he starts talking about this point. And it's not an end in and of itself only, but it's also a means to breaking capitalist power in the workplace because yeah. they have no way to discipline labor at all. They, they can't fire you. Firing is not a threat. It's funny because I'm taking uh, macroeconomics now. I'm almost done with this fucking degree. But we were talking about like unemployment in Europe and how Spain's unemployment rate is higher because they have really, really good unemployment insurance. Like it pays you a higher percentage of your original salary for a longer period of time. And so, oh, look, the unemployment rate's worse there. You know, see, that's what happens when you have that kind of insurance. But a higher percentage is unemployed, but when they're unemployed, it's not a big deal because they're still getting money. They can still pay their bills. They can still, like, get by. And it was a funny point because the teacher made a really big deal out of that. that like, oh, well, see, this is what happened. It's really inefficient. They have a high unemployment rate, but it's like, it's not a big deal. And that's kind of, I guess, what he's getting at here. Yeah, I liked how Kotsky um, said he calls for a, a democratic factory instead of the aristocratic factory. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like kind of how like, under capitalism, the workplace is a complete despotism. So socialism is in a way a, a kind of this extension of democracy to all spheres of life. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, like, I think anarcho-syndicalists are going to get behind that. You know, they wouldn't phrase it the same way. But, I mean, it is basically, you know, kind of workers' control that he's arguing for. Yeah, and it's definitely a break from the military discipline of, like, Lenin, and even of of Engels to a certain degree. Well, he's not saying there's going to be no authoritarian structure whatsoever. No, he says democracy, and we know what he means by democracy. Yeah, we know that—yeah, like, democracy does involve authority, but it also involves— legitimization of that authority through participation of everyone in decision making it's like ascending the democratic republic to all aspects of life more or less yeah including the workplace yeah he says but the discipline which lives in the proletariat is not military discipline it does not mean blind obedience to an authority imposed from above it is democratic discipline a free will submission to a self-chosen leadership do the decisions of the majority of their own comrades. If this democratic discipline operates in the factory, it presupposes a democratic organization of labor and that a democratic factory will take the place of the present aristocratic one. Nothing is more exhilarating than a free will submission to a democratic <laughs> chosen leadership. <laughs> it shows how like the idea that communism was a fairy tale in the second international is also bullshit because he does like talk about like communism and like moving beyond money and trade and exchange. Mm-hmm. Like oh, he does make that clear. Like, isn't that like Heinrich's line, right? That they use yeah. Kotsky at all use communism as a Sunday sermon or whatever. It was, yeah. And like, they never actually talked about what communism would look like. And to the extent that they had a vision of the future order, it was just this super status, like Lasallian type thing. 
world. But it's funny what he says about money, how like it's not going to really be abolished at first. And like the goal isn't to make it like the fully functioning law of value either, which is kind of what Stalinism tried to do. Like Proudhonism too. Proudhon talked about equal exchange. That was mutualism, right? Yeah. Yeah, so basically, Kosky's saying, like, instead of, like, trying to, like, make the law of value function perfectly in this ideal way, what we should do is just, like, continuously wage raises and lower the work hours and innovate the means of production and increase democracy in all spheres of life to whatever extent is necessary. And we just continually do that to the point where you have full communism. It's actually, like, one of the best arguments for how we could transition into communism that, like, I've read. And I'm glad he talks sort of about the phenomenon of, like, regulating capitals or the most technologically advanced firms and then the fact that there's an average, right, of more and less effective or efficient firms with respect to labor time. And once you know that and you start planning production, you can concentrate all of the work in the most productive factories and increase wages for everybody. And exactly. other workers who are in the inefficient factories to work doing other efficiently, you know, managed production. Yeah, through and gradually increased planning of the economy, you're mm-hmm. gradually reducing work hours mm-hmm. and labor becomes more and more something that people voluntarily do. Right. And then, and then you can also get basically a higher standard of living or higher wages, higher real wage, because you're getting a, a more productive output. Yeah. And so he he really does make a, a pretty sound argument, I think, about why communism is possible. And a kind of a, a strategy even of how to get there once you've taken state power. There's an argument, right, that's sort of like third world in origin and that some people kind of advance whether or not they have that as their background. And it almost there's it's kind of a common sense on the left that like in Europe and the United States, there's going to be a drop in the standard of living for everybody or on average if there's a socialist revolution. Part of this yeah. is maybe like environmentalist or Malthusian in that way, and it's to a certain extent. And it, this made me think of that. I don't have like a nice, neat way to bring those two things together, but it definitely brought that to mind because he's not going in that direction. Here. No, he's yeah. not going in that direction. Yeah. And he's... All- but he's talking about a proletariat that's, you know, organized and disciplined and educated by capitalism and disciplined, not in the autocratic way, but in this democratic way. And I think, he, you know, he's really thinking about a, a different proletariat, he's thinking about proletariat in Germany 100 years ago. To the extent a proletariat exists like that, like, you know, we do have a different situation. And I mean, the optimism of this text really stands out when he says that, you know, farmers and intellectuals have nothing to fear. And that he, you know, he really can't imagine the kind of things that, you know, Stalin would do. There is something about Kautsky's formulation that is inaccurate, although a lot of a lot of what he did to think things through is admirable and a task that we basically need to do for our own conditions. Mm-hmm. But our conditions are, you know, a lot of his reasons for hope aren't here, and we have to. I mean, in what ways does capitalism prepare us to govern ourselves? I mean, a lot of people can't fucking tie their shoes or defend themselves. I don't think he saw it as like an automatic process. I think that it was the struggles to build the party, to build the unions in Germany that did a lot of the sort of instructing and laying the groundwork for having a mass working class familiar with the idea of socialism. 
And I guess this kind of ties back to what we were saying before, but I've always been, and Donald can attest to this, of the opinion that like we do need to build the party now and build the unions now. I'm, I'm always far more sympathetic to that. Yeah, um, I mean, know, I agree fully. I'm a part of the Communist League of Tampa, and so I guess on the spectrum between, like, the do-nothings and then, like, seller newspapers trots, we're maybe closer to the do-nothings, but within the Communist League, I'm closer to the seller newspapers trots, I guess. I, I wouldn't ever sell a newspaper, but... Because I do think that, like, that's the variable that changes. I'd be it's, willing to go to door-to-door and tell people to vote for a socialist, like... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like... I, I, and I don't mean to suggest that nothing has changed because things definitely have changed. I guess where I would meet you, Lexi, is that like that's what we have to bridge. It's like how do how do we build the party now? How do we build unions now? Well, I think like, there's a mistaken view that like the party comes from the unions and the unions spontaneously form from like the worker struggles. But really, like the party historically, parties have taken very active roles in forming unions and stuff. No, of course. I mean, I take that as commonsensical, but of course you're right that it's not common sense. It's still a catch-22 that, you know, there has to be some kind of smaller agency to help build the bigger working class agency in order to get effective small agencies that helps to have the big working class agency to focus on. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah. So, well, one of the ways I've been thinking about it is that like the Socialist Party of the United States and the labor movement came up together. The labor movement preceded it for sure, but there were always elements that were like linked in some way to socialism, right? At least in the case of like the IWW, you you get it after someone who has been involved in the labor movement converts to socialism alongside other labor people who are interested in socialism. Some of them who aren't in the labor movement form like a socialist party, but then they also like come back together and they form the IWW. I guess the way, like, it's just sort of as a vindication of what, Donald just said um, that they kind of they really feed into each other and go together but I've been thinking that you need that smaller group that's politically cohered and has an understanding of what is needed to bring the labor movement back because the liberal conception of how politics and the economy and how the world works uh, allowed it to kind of get a hold of the unions and to steer them in a particular direction, but they've completely run them aground in the United States and they have no way of rebuilding the labor movement. They have no conception yeah. of how capitalism functions that would allow them to do so. They also have long-term institutional norms that are specifically pushing out exactly this critique. The historical point uh, you were talking about, how it's often said that the party emerges from kind of the trade union movement. I think this goes back to the Anglo backwardness that we were talking about last time. Mm. Like that was something which at least was perceived to have happened in Great Britain and Australia to a lesser degree, Canada to a lesser degree. The archetype for this is definitely the UK, where trade unions had a fairly long and storied history through the, the latter half of the 19th century, sometimes being legal, sometimes being illegal and so on. But they didn't really cohere into projecting themselves as an independent political force until you know, 1900, arguably not really even until 1920 or so. And I think because part of this might just be with the, the way that what type of organization is next in terms of or, organizing the working class. Logically, yes, a even just a, a non-socialist workers party coming out of the trade union movement is the next step in terms of the fact that it's a higher form of organization than simply a trade union. But in many other countries, again, aside from the UK and some of its colonies, that logical progression didn't happen. 
in Germany at least, it was the SPD, which was in some sense instrumental in forming an actual organized trade union movement in places like, I, I know a little bit about Italy and Spain, and there it's there it's a little bit more complicated, but there's... In there's, Italy, there's I know that the PSI was very involved in the union movement, even more so than Germany. I think kind of one of the unique things about the PSI was like how close the syndicalist faction was to the partyist Marxist faction and how they really weren't as separate in the laws they were in, say, Spain. I read at some point a bit about a group called the Sicilian Leagues, which were in some sense a fusion of trade union type organizations, proto-socialist political parties, and in some extreme cases having dealings with mafia organizations, but leave that to one side. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of these functions were, in fact, very closely tied together. I mean, in the, in the case of the United States, you have, like, seems one of the least well-organized socialist parties. And the same thing with sort of like the left wing of the labor movement, at least up until you get into like the 30s, which is kind of an interesting situation. Like even most of the socialist party was dominated by the right wing. There's a split that happens there, but the official, the leadership was very right wing. There wasn't really a Kotsky to play center or anything, and it was almost completely subordinated then to the AFL and, and the reformist or liberal labor bureaucracy. That's a big part of that question, is if there's a spontaneous or if there's a way that capitalists tend to deal with labor problems where the labor bureaucracy becomes sort of, people like to say, integrated or some way in some way accommodated, right? I, I, mostly it's got to be through ideology. What role does the party then play, or a socialist party, small groups of communists as they get together and want to form a party, play in, like, pushing against that? I mean, in the United States, the labor movement right now is, as small as it is, it does kind of exist, and it's basically led by a Democratic Party. Yeah, that's a good question. How do you push against that kind of bureaucratic leadership of the labor movement without, you know, trying to split the labor movement itself, I guess? Uh, 10% of labor is organized, um, five, 5% in the private sector, and I think something like 30-ish percent in the public sector. Mm-hmm. Percentage-wise, there's probably more people in, like, co-ops. <laughs> there's so many workers that are unorganized, and they don't have a union. And so if socialists can get their shit together enough to figure out, and, and they can, like, agree enough to come together on, like, a just, okay, we want to broadly socialist union that agrees with the maximum program, right? That we want to get rid of capitalism and institute, you know, a socialist society. So I'm thinking mostly like the example would be the IWW. Then we need to hash out what are the practicals? How do we like form an effective class struggle union that brings people in, that wins demands, that is sustainable. Um, And socialists like have to be playing a role in that. And they have in the past. And it's been, that's been to their benefit because there is a relationship that will then emerge once you have a, like unions in a party, or there's a possibility there. But You have to do the research as well. What is modern-day class composition, and what kind of industries have a kind of situation that would be amenable to organizing in that we could kind of spark things with, you know? Sure. We should talk about taxation and confiscation and... Oh, yeah. What did people think of that? Re- recompensation. <laughs> Compensation. Yeah, um, the, the, the taxation thing, um, I was just, just a minor note maybe to get it started is he says there's two reasons why, but I didn't see him clearly say the two reasons why the proletariat would choose to compensate versus purely compensate. 
So if anyone else felt like they could clarify that or... I think so, it was um, because they wouldn't want to alienate the petty bourgeois or something like that. I can't remember. That seemed yeah. to be a component, but I didn't notice any other second reasons. I don't know. I don't see why you couldn't just have the ex-bourgeoisie trained to do socially useful labor and then <laughs> go do useful labor. <laughs> like, I feel like compensation is just like, eh. It's not the worst thing, but, like, you might as well put them to work in some useful way, like everyone else has to. I mean, it's it's worth considering when you look at Lincoln and the way he prosecuted the Civil War. I mean, it's kind of absurd how long he holds out for compensating, like, slaveholders. And, you know, the amazing thing is that the abolition of slavery is mostly, vast majority, done without compensation. Like, that's how that went down. So it's worth considering, if there's a movement with big enough moral force to abolish capitalism, that, you know, moral force and that's the thing about the Civil War. There was a physical force as well. Oh, yeah. But if it's a situation of revolutionary moral force against, you know, the fucking Terminator armed to the teeth that, you know, we just, <laughs> there's an element of moral force about it that, I mean, we might end up with a compensatory program of some kind. Yeah. We won't have the guns. <laughs> to, well, yeah, Kotsky is basically, confiscation. yeah, Kotsky is kind of like making this abstract scenario where the revolution is able to peacefully happen. And he admits that yeah. it probably won't happen this way, but he's simply sketching it out this way for abstract reasons. And I imagine a lot of factories would be seized because, especially from certain capitalists who are, like, especially reactionary, and they would just yeah. be killed or something. I don't know. Like, it will depend on, like, the needs of the class struggle, I think. Like, maybe a certain capitalist, you know, we can get them to support us somehow. And so we'll compensate them when we take their shit. But, like, it depends, I guess. And I guess that's what Koski's saying. He's saying there's just, it depends on the circumstances of the uh, revolution. Part of this reminded me back in, I forget if it's the Communist Manifesto or the Principle of Communism. In one of those documents where they have the immediate demands, I think is what they call them, of one of them is the confiscation of, of the property of rebels, emigres, and other similar sorts. And my guess is that the, the distinction between kind of compensation and confiscation might at least in part come from that, where a proletarian government would basically say to the capitalists who still have economic power, if you submit to our political will, then we'll basically buy you off. We'll compensate you for these things that we're going to take. But if you flee the country, take up arms against this new government, whole stop, then we're just going to fucking take it. Yeah, that sounds like a sensible policy. It, mm -hmm. It's motivation, you know? Look, we're playing ball here, bourgeoisie. Like, <laughs> you don't want to lose your property. Tough shit. But you can lose it better. <laughs> I like that. I think um, the not, you know, expropriating all, every single piece of private property at one stroke is pretty important to consider yep. the sort of Stalinist ends that could have. Yeah, because every time a Stalinist regime gets consolidated, that's kind of how they do it. It's just by nationalizing everything, and it usually doesn't really go very well. It's a scenario. <laughs> well, it just doesn't become actually socialized. It just becomes kind of statized, I guess, you know? 
Mm -hmm. Uh, There's so many moments in this, like under the incentive of the laborer to labor. There's so many moments in this that are just like you just sigh when you think of the reality of 20th century state socialism. You know, it's like, what are the means at the disposal of the new regime for the solution of this problem for the incentive? Certainly not the whip of hunger and still less that of physical compulsion. (laughs) If there are people who think that the victory of the proletariat is to establish a prison regimentation where each one will be assigned his labor by a superior, then they know the proletariat very poorly. There are a lot of moments like that here. Yeah, I remember that quote. It's a strong one. You realize, and again, with the intellectuals, and that the intellectuals have nothing to fear, and but and specifically the farmers, that the farmers, the small property farmers, that they have nothing to fear from socialism. Kautsky makes some quotes that your heart just kind of aches reading them because he's just too, at the very least, his the face that he's showing to the audience is too humanitarian <laughs> to yeah. imagine what Sorry. could happen, what did happen under vastly different circumstances, but still it happened. Yeah. It's a harsh juxtaposition. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons why Kotsky gets shit on so much is because it's just like, oh, Kotsky, he never got his hands dirty and communized anything or whatever. I don't know. He never led a third world revolution. Like, no third world revolution was inspired by Kotsky's social revolution. Like, why do we care about that old crap? But it's pretty I mean, important. He's vindicated, though, right? Because right? Like, it's the yeah. workers didn't conquer power and the Soviet Union. That wasn't a workers' government. You know, that exactly. wasn't political. They did power. democracy, and they did need a working class majority to be able to govern as, you know, a working class government. Yeah, like that vindication is nothing in the face of, you know, the people that were killed in the name of communism. It really is a hard thing to have to deal with, but. If you wanted to get into it, there's some merit to the claim. I think that it's not going to play the same, right? It's It can't play the same. It can't. It because simply can't. The benefit we have now, or at least something that kind of takes the sting out of it a little bit, is that, again, we are like our technology is so much more advanced and production is so much better organized now. And peasantry are so much less of a social force in the world. Um, there's less of a chance for that happening, yeah. certainly in the United States, but... Yeah, depending on where you are in the world. There's always a potential for parallel situations to occur in the future, and it's not something to lose sleep over necessarily. But it's but this is why we need to work this stuff out, because right. the difference between Karl Kautsky writing The Social Revolution and us now is we can wince at these passages of optimism mm-hmm. because we have something to compare it to of when these revolutions were tried. Not even really this revolution, but, you know, one that was inspired by Kautsky in, in this weird, ironic, historical way. This vision of revolution doesn't seem like it was possible in the conditions of the 20th century in retrospect. Mm-hmm. As far as peaceful, yes, but I don't think, like, this vision of revolution is actually possible. Because a civil war will break out if we actually come to power and start ending constitutional guarantees of private property and seizing factories when people try to take them overseas. And, you know, this is a very ideal situation that he's phrasing out in this book. And we know, and he admits it as well, that things are not going to go like this. It's not going to be this easy. It's not going to be this simple. And the whole 20th century is a big pile of skulls that, you know, backs that claim up, I guess. (laughs) It's universally accepted that state ownership of, like, private property sounds like a nightmare scenario, right? Like, 
at least in the West. Like if you start talking about, oh, the state yeah. will own everything and it will be okay. Like we'll all get free food. We'll get educated. Like well, people are like, they look at you. Uh, so yeah. And that's, he's, he's able to write about it in such like stark and like open terms because at that time it just wasn't. But the history of the 20th century and the triumph of really just liberal capitalism took advantage of the failures to definitely promulgate that ideology. Yeah, they definitely have taken every single little failure of communism and made it into a whole reason to completely disregard the ideology completely, mm. especially in marginal utility economics. It's just, oh, the Soviet Union is finally the complete proof we need to show that you know marginal utility is true and labor theory value is stupid and et cetera. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Economic lysenkoism. <laughs> <laughs> when you get down to it, liberal ideology, the economics super hollow, but they have the benefit of being in power so that you're raised on the narratives that they kind of put out there, but also that if you do it any other way, hey, bad stuff's going to happen. We're not going to totally say that we're not responsible for it, but you know, your country might starve. That's why I'm saying like we need to actually like have solutions on how people are gonna freaking eat. Mm-hmm. Like we can't have this communization crap where it's like, well, people may choose to just talk about love instead of baking the bread and then well, we'll just have to deal with it. There will be no bread. Like right. we can't we can't have that kind of your nonsense. And some of this stuff is, is stuff that like a lot of people are dealing with, right? So like the idea was around, it was current that there should be a Europe-wide revolution, but it was also still possible to talk about it in one country. And while that's still used by like Marxist Leninists and other kind of wackos, most of the left seems to have like, okay, it, we have to be internationalists. The revolution has to be like on a continent-wide basis or something, like a country that's big enough or sustainable enough to where it can't be totally squeezed from without, and it has to immediately start going towards world revolution. Well, Um, I mean, is that commonplace in the left? Because I feel like most of the left is for some kind of socialism in one country, whether it's it's like social democracy, you know, like Bernie-style social democracy, or Stalinism, or Maoism, or some kind of, basically, like the idea that you can have a, a planned economy in in a single country that is like a functioning socialist society that's true yeah i guess it's not really a common it depends i guess i guess trotskyists are more common in the u.s yeah and then they're more sympathetic although they have their own like idiosyncrasies with yeah but i guess i mean trotskyist groups are more common in the u.s but i don't know if trotskyism or you know the internationalist aspects of trotskyism are necessarily more common than post-new communist movement Marxist-Leninism, because the the new communist movement and politics emanating from that was, at least until the 1980s or so, much more dominant than Trotskyism was. The groups have largely died, but the politics are still there. Yeah, that's true. That continues to be the case, yeah. I guess in the UK, Trotskyism is more common, whereas Maoism is more common in the US. Yeah, that's definitely true. But at the same time, looking at the UK, I don't know if that necessarily makes them more internationalist. Yeah. You can see this sometimes in debates around the EU, where you have ostensible Trotskyists talking about reclaiming national democracy. Yeah, from yeah, that's true. Brussels bureaucrat. They do sometimes frame it in terms of arguments that, okay, the EU is a neoliberal bosses club. Yes, it is. Fair enough. But the solutions that they put forward for it, at least to me, seem like that they're basically going back to saying the British working class 
can solve the problems vis-a-vis the British state. Yeah, it's so, definitely a form of nationalism. Like social democracy, it's it's weird because it wants to be nice and liberal and good, but it still has to use nationalism to function. So mm-hmm. it's just always this tension, and man, it can always lead to weird types of labor chauvinism and stuff. Well, and it's yeah, and it's similar stuff with Greece too. I guess I I was you know projecting like our kind of groups politics too much on the rest of the left. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, amongst the people we talk to, like, yeah, we're it's it's obvious that communism is international. I guess just common sense. Like, it's the world division of labor is global, and if it's going to function globally, it's going to be done on a global basis. So, yeah. Right. One thing about this pamphlet is Kosky kind of is describing socialism in one country, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Because he's not explicitly saying, like, this is an international revolution, really. He does kind of make it seem like it is a national thing, basically. Well, there, There is, you know, going to be a first revolution. Yeah. And it probably would be in a single place first. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, exactly. That makes so, sense. It's just that Kosky doesn't stress the point that, like, the revolution has to spread. As much as he should, I think. Well, yeah, right. Again, it also hadn't happened yet. And really, when people are thinking of how long the dictatorship of the proletariat is going to last, and they didn't have, like, theories that, well, you need the revolution to come in, you know, within, like, 18 months or else the whole thing's gone to shit. You know, people were thinking that you could set up, like, a proletarian bulwark for a while to kind of wait out the period between the revolutions it remains to be seen if anything like that would be practicable like it doesn't seem like it it was not in russia at least alone no in russia alone no imagining a situation in like the united states the united states happens to be one country in particular where if this country somehow as a block went red it's like hard to imagine but um if major parts of the united states went red together like it is it is plausible that like that would be like uh, something that would turn the whole continent or something. You know, well, what I yeah, mean? because it's the most advanced capitalist country. So it would totally just throw the yeah. global market like into <laughs> disarray and it would just yeah, it would be insane, which makes it not the most likely country for that to happen. In yeah, first. I guess. Yeah, I guess kind of one thing you could take from the experience of the 20th century is that revolution kind of breaks out in capitalism's weakest link first and then spreads to the more advanced countries, I guess. Maybe it's proven that that strategy doesn't work and that it's really, you know, the other way around, that the advanced countries will have the revolution first and then it will spread to the weakest link or whatever. I don't know. I mean, because we have to be careful because, like, it happened in a particular way for a lot of particular reasons. Because if you say the weakest link thing, someone can just point to, like, Kurdistan and or, well, to Kurdish parts of Syria, Kurdish-controlled or whatever, and say, well, there it is. Like, that's a destabilized, a weak link, and there's a revolution force there. Let's support that. That's our key. Yeah. But that's that's completely absurd. Yeah. But the thing is, like, Russia did have, like, a pretty large industrial base. It was just surrounded by peasants. So that's kind of, I guess, part of my point, is that there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of factors that would go into 
not only like can this particular country given certain circumstances serve as like a a node and a wave that might pop off or something yeah is it even possible does it even have like a large working class that's there that's active in a socialist movement that's organized as far as like Syria and Iraq go those are like devastated countries you know that have millions of refugees fleeing them right yeah so it doesn't seem like it's actually very ripe for workers to conquer. Yeah, if you want to hold on to the weak link theory, you probably, at, at the very least, need to rephrase it to say that the chain breaks at, at one of the weaker links, but not necessarily the weakest. If you're talking about the weakest link, at least in terms of the, the main empires in the world right now, it's the Ottoman Empire, or, you know, in the, the early 20th century. The collapse of the Ottoman Empire didn't lead to socialism anywhere. Russia was, it was, yeah, it was a weaker link, but not the weakest link, I'd say. There's a sweet spot in development between, like, totally destitute and, you know, decadent power totally concentrated somewhere where you have a shot. I think, I don't know, maybe we'll see it happen in more developed parts of the Middle East, perhaps. Yasmin Mather, I think, is with the CPGB, her kind of line or whatever seems to be that, like, with regards to the Middle East, like Iran is one of the only places where there's like an organized working class. It's not yet engulfed in warfare and there's some wiggle room. Like they are organized, they are striking and that's who we should focus on to support. This is, you know, her talking at communist university. That makes a lot of sense though, because Iran is a very like modernized advanced country. And that's, yeah, that's another part of it that she put it. And then on the other hand, there are workers definitely in Saudi Arabia and in other places, but then there's a competition between which workers are under more, like, repression, the ones in Saudi Arabia or Iran. But, yeah. And, of course, they would all merit our support, but, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I think, yeah, looking at Iran is a very interesting idea. And there is a history of revolutionary struggle there as well. Right. Yeah, Iran, China. (laughs) China's a big one. China, there's, like, some of the most militant class struggle in the world right now. That kind of goes to the second thing I think you need for... Rehabilitating its weak link theory is that in addition to a comparatively weak link within the global capitalist order, you also need a significant level of workers' organization in order to actually have a chance of taking power. For all people like to claim that Shaviks were a small party, you know, in, in 1917, which in some sense they were, but they still had like 10, 15,000 members, which in the context of in Russia and World War One is pretty large. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, you know, all, every single one of those members was a party activist who was, you know, building connections in factories and and agitating in the workplace or agitating in neighborhoods, you know. The, I mean, if I'm being perfectly frank, I don't even understand like, what we would mean. Like, what would we mean by weakest link or a weak? Yeah, because at this like, point, it's, it's not, like. It's not a simple chain. It's not linear. It's not, you know, and so on the one hand, you can talk about development right? And then you also can talk about like, and it's tied to this, but degree of integration to the world market. And neither of those things, either together or on their own, necessarily mean that a revolution in a particular country is going to, you know, cause all of these problems in other capitalist countries. Well, integration into the world market does. You're right, it does, but it depends, right, on the nature of that integration. So if this economy is dependent on the world market, like, so Venezuela is a good Sure, sure. Yeah, so they're integrated into the world market, you know, via one commodity that funds their government and everything else. The media right now wants to make that Hugo Chavez's fault. And not to apologize for Chavez, but Venezuela's main export has been oil long before he was the 
pink tide president there. But yeah, so that's a part of it. Well, I think another thing is if we're going to rehabilitate the weak link theory or whatever, like you have to have a global workers movement already, mm -hmm. you know, you already have to have solidarity from workers in other countries that can, that can back you up basically when you have your revolution. Like, like even in the U S for example, you had, you know, workers who would refuse to ship munitions to Russia and stuff. Mm -hmm. And in Europe, you had a lot of um, dissent. That was it. Really relies on having an organized global movement and having a movement that exists on a global scale. Well, yeah. Even with that, like, there's an issue that we're still talking about socialist revolutions happening in these, you know, from the point of view of, of the developed capitalist countries. These revolutions are happening in more backwards territories and there's a sense that, oh, they don't have what we have. And there's, uh, I don't know, Jan Elster, one of the analytical Marxists, did like a rational choice modeling of this, of how like there's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it sounds cringy, but honestly, like it's a good mapping of the problem that you have, you know, more well-off countries that have a lot of the technical capacity that is necessary for like a broader socialist project. Then you have socialist countries that are, you know, on, have less material development. And, you know, you have a problem of how do you win working class solidarity? And in this model, it's assuming unions and, you know, assuming that there is like workers organizations already. And it's and it's a problem even with workers organizations. Well, so this kind of gets us into the increase in production section, which is probably the last one we could talk about. Yeah. And I was also I was actually going to use China as the segue before, but. Kotsky talks about increasing production and using that to raise wages, reduce work hours, and to kind of, what is it, to solve the problem he mentions before. We shall see that there is none too much remaining over from the present income of the capitalists to be applied to the raising of wages, even if we compensate capital at one stroke. We're going to have to increase production like, and continue development. And I guess there's two things, I guess I brought it up earlier about sort of the third worldism, which is the reduction of standard of living, which I think is maybe kind of what you were touching on, Lexi. And then the question of like the environment. Specifically in, in the model, Elster is assuming that socialism will be at a higher material level, but that there is going to be a dip during the revolution as you're kind of reconfiguring okay. things. And so that dip becomes the problem. Yeah. You know, it's a good argument. Like, it's it's a, it's an important argument, and it's uh, if we're maintaining this idea that it's it's going to be coming from a weak link or mm -hmm. something along those lines in the capitalist economy, this is all very relevant. And for a lot of people, this is an implausible theory because if the most advanced countries are not socialist, they have the most means to hold on to their power. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think honestly, at this point, the whole world is capitalized enough to where. Pretty much any part of the world is relatively industrial, has some center that's relatively industrialized. And so there's really no one continent where the revolution is necessarily going to have to break out first or anything like that. But I think yeah. the uneven development of capitalism is something to keep in mind. There are definitely places where there would also have to be like exporting, right, of capital goods um, yeah. to help bring up the level of production there. But then, then I guess another aspect of that, and it doesn't have to be in conflict, right? Like environmental problems, ways of increasing or extending production. I guess you can think of it like intensifying production in terms of like dead labor, right? Using more machinery and technology and planning production in ways that understand environmental impact is, I don't think it's out of the question at all. 
Well, yeah, because if you're trying to scale back, why do we have like all these factories producing the same thing? It's just because we have a competitive system. If you're scaling back the parasitic aspects of capitalism, you're freeing up labor, but you're also actually minimizing like the total amount of industry that exists. There's there more like competition between firms, and so therefore you can scale back, you know, the actual amount of like production that happens. Right. Instead of having production organized in a way where it's produce as much as you can to see if you can outcompete someone else to get rich doing it, it's going to be, hey, let's produce what we need. <laughs> Kotsky doesn't really explain how people are going to like determine what they need. The whole, the whole problem of what is need exactly and how do you define that and how do consumers and producers under socialism convey their needs to each other and harmonious way. He just says, well, it's all going to be planned and harmonious. And we obviously know today that that's not exactly an easy thing to achieve. Yeah, although it is easier to imagine how that would go down now than it would then. Because in reality, capitalism is abstracting money from from even like a physical object. (laughs) Like it's digits in a computer to a degree. Like, and it's... Not exactly, you know, fading away or anything like that. It's still very powerful, but it is being like centralized and computerized, and it's possible to imagine a transfer of something that's associated with like a you know labor credit system that's based on the technologies we have. Yeah, right. yeah, definitely. He talks about token money, yeah, and yeah, he says basically like money will just become a form of labor credits after everything becomes collectivized enough, which makes sense. Supply and demand would not really determine anything about how you're paid at that point. Right. Logistics as we, like, capitalism has built up to this point, like, just-in-time production um, and, like, distribution networks. And it's like, you can go on your computer and, like, be, hey, I want this thing, and then it can be at your house. You know what I mean? Like, in a matter of days or whatever. Like, yeah, really, yeah. All of this information technology and and the way that it's changed production and distribution, it seems like so much more, like so much closer to the precipice of simply like from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Like you just because there, I'm not saying we, there won't still be that period of like labor notes or tokens, but that it's even possible to imagine when you get past that now. Yeah, like we've gotten to the point where high tech communism just seems like almost just common sense. Like, why aren't we just doing it this way? <laughs> yeah, it, it's implied by the conversation about automation and how we're going to deal with automation. Even when Google employees are talking about this, they explicitly talk about, well, if we just let everyone lose their jobs, there's going to be a revolution. Like these are Google employees saying that. I don't even know if that's true. Like based on everything that I've looked into, I'm perhaps even more pessimistic about revolution than Google employees, (laughs) which is a sad thought. But you know, like this is on people's minds when they're talking about automation. There's something I think we should read for the podcast. Uh, James Boggs, he wrote a pamphlet called The American Revolution. All, it's all about how automation changes the class struggle. When people are talking about automation in everyday life, just normies, you know, there is a, a, a shadow, a specter haunting that conversation, the specter of revolution. Yeah, that's maybe one thing we could agitate on more is uh, automation basically just pointing out how capitalism is making automation an enemy of people rather than a real tool for alleviating 
the negative aspects of labor. I mean, Graeber has the agitational point down, which is that like the increase in technology that is always promised to like make our lives easier, but it does the opposite, right? It's also the point that Marx made a long time ago, which is that you bring more technology into the workplace, it makes it worse for the workers. That it's a point that we have to keep making. That until you get rid of the social relations, these technical changes aren't going to be liberating. We've automated like laundry work or whatever a little bit, or our aspects of doing laundry. So now you just have more free time to devote towards other tasks related to work, right? Your commute, yeah. whatever. You know, it doesn't necessarily liberate you, even if it's outside the workplace. There's even like a Black Mirror episode of something like Labor Tokens. Like it has to be accompanied by a shift in social power. It has to be made. Labor has to become something that's enjoyable, you know. Right. Like if it's just, if it's just like, you know, going down these awful coal mines every day to get your labor tokens to wait in line for bread, it's still going to be shitty, you know. Right. Like, or even just pedaling a bike all day to get your labor tokens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, something that alienating. See, in Black Mirror, they're taking it to the extreme, of course. Right. But, um, let's accept that it's that alienating of labor. <laughs> Okay, maybe you do that for like, you know, three years of your life for like, you know, four hours a week. By the time you're done automating all the labor and necessary labor for an entire society, if you really spread the burden of the necessary labor, really small burden on on each, you know, seven billion, seven and a half billion you know, people, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. cutting out people who, who can't work, you know, from the numbers. I mean, it would still be a very small amount of work. So even if it was that shitty and alienating. And even if it is a situation of like a horrible despotic factory, like Engels seems to think it'll be like an on authority, you just do it for like a few hours. I mean, like, it's not like I want that. But even in that situation, like, it would still be preferable to the way a lot of people live where, oh, you know, I have, I have so much flex time, but, you know, it's like consuming my entire day. Right. It's not like you can punch in for, you know, three hours and be out. Right. Of course, the reality is that part of the the bleakness in the Black Mirror portrayal does derive from the experiences of the 20th century, which in turn derive from, you know, conditions that we don't have to deal with as much, right? Countries are far more developed now. It's not that Stalinism won't be a problem and we don't have to reckon with those problems as much, but that the conditions that created it won't exactly be there. They won't be the same. There'll definitely be like civil war and warfare, but it won't be exacerbated by the isolation and the inability to provide just basic necessary resources on that scale, I think. Yeah. Final thoughts on intellectual production or we didn't really I talk about intellectual production. About the very last part of the uh, pamphlet where he talks about kind of how um, socialism will bring about a greater intellectual era. That was a good way to end it, you know, going against this idea that a lot of reactionaries have that, oh, you know, tradition and all that stuff is what makes things good and socialism is going to like destroy that well i mean in the united states like it's funny that people always blame the proletariat for the degradation of aristocratic cultural values or whatever because it's really the bourgeoisie that destroys aristocratic cultural value like it's really sell everything and like the the new money that is really tacky and doesn't have that aristocratic refinement like that's really who tears that up. Yeah. The, I mean, the proletariat, if anything, make the most admirable use and, and like cultural reverence of just shit, shit that's totally beneath them. And they, they can show you a way of looking at it that's really admirable just because of who they are. <laughs>
That was One Fine Morning by the Canadian pop band Lighthouse from 1971. Chosen not because it was shit of bourgeois culture that we need the proletariat to reinterpret, but because of that gorgeous phrase that Kautsky uses throughout the social revolution to describe the day when the proletariat find themselves in the seat of power one fine morning. Sorry about the sound quality for this one. If you really want to help us out, look out for our upcoming Patreon or equivalent donation thing so that we can buy better microphones and to cover other costs associated with the podcast. You can, as always, like us, follow us, leave a review, but this Patreon thing is going to be the big way to help us out coming up, so if you got some pocket change to spare, that would be sweet. That's going to be it for this week. Until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.